Well, friends, if you have been with us, you know that we've been in the letter of Galatians week by week. Um, And uh, what a great letter that is that rejoices in uh, the gospel hope. Uh, And really, the letter of Romans that will be in this morning and Galatians are similar letters uh, in a number of ways. Uh, They both focus on the gospel and on the hope of justification. Justification being that doctrinal truth that we've studied over these weeks together. That by the goodness of God and His grace, our sins have been credited to Christ. His righteousness credited to us. And the gavel of heaven's courtroom has come down to declare us not innocent, but righteous with the very righteousness of Christ. Galatians and Romans are both letters that emphasize this truth. And Romans is all about the the power of of the gospel and the righteousness of the gospel that's offered to us through faith alone. After having unpacked the doctrine of justification in Romans chapter 3 and 4, using Abraham, much like Galatians, Abraham as an example of being credited with righteousness through faith, Paul moves in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 to the hope and the implications that flow out of our justification status and righteousness as believers. In chapter 5, he says that we have a new family, that we are in Christ, Romans 5. In chapter 6, Paul argues that we have a new relationship with sin, that we are dead to sin. In chapter 7, Paul argues that we have a new relationship with the law, that we are not under law, Romans 7. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul argues that we have really a new relationship with God, that we're secure in Christ. We're secure in His love. Secured by inseparable love. Uh, Many of us, most of us probably in this room, have experienced the pain and difficulty of failed human love. Apparent a sibling, a spouse, a friend with whom you shared commitment and sacrifice and affection, but under the strain of life's pressures, that love and that commitment was damaged. It was diminished. It was exposed. Broken promises, betrayal, divorce. These are things that touch us in a fallen world. Perhaps there's conflict severed by sin in a relationship or in a friendship that's still not the same in your life even today where you sit. And we know Romans 8, or excuse me, Romans 12 says to uh, uh, do whatever we can, be at peace with all men so long as it depends on you. And yet we also know from the experience of our own lives in a very real way, failed human love. And the question comes, what about God's love? What about His affection for us as believers? Can you as a genuine child of God, even struggling with sin and weakness, can you outsin His love? Will His love ever fail towards you? Can the difficulties or heartaches of a world that for now appears to be dominated by War and hate and disappointment. Those things flourish. Can this groaning world bring anything into your life, believer, that severs God's love for you in the end? 
See, the love in this passage that we'll study this morning is not the fleeting love of emotion or attraction. It is that agape love. That's the word that we'll find a couple times. It's the the giving love of sacrificial commitment. But perhaps more importantly than that, this is not the love of man who in his weakness withers like the grass. But this is the love of God. The love of Yahweh. The protecting, enduring, covenant love. The love of from Him who is Alpha and Omega, the Eternal One. And Romans 8, from beginning to end, Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation. Romans 8, 35 says there will be no separation. From beginning to end, this is a chapter, friends, that booms with theological certainty regarding the love of God grounded in His own grace and glory. And as we look at verse 35 to 39, it's like a cherry on top of what is already a a, a sweet, sweet chapter. Get a running start with me, if you will. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 to 34, I had the privilege of, of teaching a number of weeks or months ago, and it really seals the believer's legal case. So verse 31 to 34, getting a running start into our text beginning in verse 35, this paragraph describes our position, our justification, our status in Christ, and Paul teaches with unanswerable questions, or rather with rhetorical questions, to which the answer is, there's no one. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? No one. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Of course he will. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, he who died, and rather who was raised, and is at the right hand of God. And so what I'm saying, beloved, is that so certain is your legal case and your protection in Christ that the Holy Spirit teaches, verse 31 to 34, by rhetorical questions. Questions so obvious that no answer is given in the text. And if verse 31 to verse 34 seal our legal case, verse 35 to 39, the end of the chapter, what they are is the relational sweetness of God's inseparable love towards us in Christ. So we have before us this morning a sweet relational text. We know John 3.16 that God so loved the world He gave His Son, He gave of Himself that we would have forgiveness, that we would have life that we don't deserve. And so what I want to present is two comparisons, two comparisons that showcase the inseparable love of God and that ground believers in a relationship of security and care. I'm going to say that again. Two comparisons that showcase the inseparable love of God and that ground the believer in a relationship of security and care. Let me clarify off the top before I come to them one by one. Verse 35, look at it. The love of Christ. And verse 39, the love of God in Christ. Number one, those are, those are the same thing. And secondly, those deal with God's love for us, not our love for Him. So we're talking about two comparisons that showcase His inseparable love, if you will. Um, It's like Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. So comparison number one is that the 
Love of Christ is greater than every earthly trial. The love of Christ is greater than every earthly trial. Verse 35 to 37. Look at what the text says. He opens with another question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is asking these staccato questions, ascending steps, if you will. And there was a number of steps in that paragraph, verse 31 to 4. He asked question after question after question. Now in verse 35, he's at the top of a staircase landing, looking out uh, at, at the top at the view. This is a man gripped with the greatness and the love of God. And he says, Who's, who will separate us from the love of Christ? From the covenant love of Yahweh. Now he does answer the question, verse 38 and 39. Eventually he says, nothing. Nothing will separate us from his love. But before he does, he gives a list of what we might call hypothetical separators. Hypothetical separators. These don't actually separate us from the love of Christ. But Paul, for the sake of argument, he lists them and he says, how about this? How about this? How about this? And so you can see if you're taking notes or even in just in the text, verse 35 begins a list of hypothetical separators. Now, the love of Christ is greater than every earthly trial. They don't actually separate. But look at what he says. He says, verse 35, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or, or, famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The verb separate, you've probably experienced this. This is a relational distance word. Uh, you can imagine a, a conflict at uh, maybe among family or at work where there's a wedge that's driven in between people that, that, that damages or, or puts distance in the relationship. So the word separates a distance word. It means to cut off or to, to tear apart. Uh, it means to be alienated from. It's actually a technical word used both in Matthew 19 and uh, 1 Corinthians 7 for divorce. And the question comes, what will cut off the sheep of Christ's flock from the good shepherd's care? What will tear you, child of God, from his love? We understand life is fraught with all, every kind of trial. But which of these effectively separates the believer from the Father's love? And of course, the answer is none of them. None of them. Let's consider these one by one. The first word, look in your Bible, is the word tribulation. Or some translations say trouble. This is a word for pressure or for pressing together. It's translated sometimes as affliction or as oppression. Um, often tribulation is associated with suffering for Christ. But if you want to summarize this idea, tribulation means difficult pressing circumstances. Difficult pressing circumstances. That's tribulation. Situations that press us or they distress us. You've faced that in life, haven't you? Maybe it was medical, maybe it was financial, maybe it was relational or a ministry kind of burden. Tribulations are those things in life that press us and distress us. They showcase the weakness and the frailty of humanity. But here's the encouraging thing. Paul is saying that does not separate us from the love of our God. That we experience those things. You know, Christ is not going to look down from the right hand of heaven and say, Ah, that guy, he's... He's such a joke. His faith is so weak. He's so hot and cold. No, he, he understands as a great high priest the weakness and the pressing and the distressing of tribulation. In fact, he said, John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. Same word. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. It won't separate you from the love of Christ, right? 
There's a second word in your Bible. That's the word distress. You guys see that? The word distress is a similar word. It means narrowness or tightness. You can picture uh, a, a garlic press. Uh, or if, uh, like me, when you were a child, you put Play-Doh in the garlic press and press it through, and whether it's the cloves or the Play-Doh coming out the other end, this, this pressing, this narrowness, it's the, it's the packing of a, you know, the, the, the tightening up of a snowball as you, as you gather it together. This is, and you know what it feels like, don't you? Uh, sometimes we feel like we don't have any good options in life. We feel stuck. Paul says, look, that reality that we all experience, as uncomfortable as it may be, as painful as it may be, that doesn't separate us from our God. That doesn't separate us from his love. By the way, friends, this word distress, it can be used for outward pressure or for inward turmoil, which is important because the one who often brings lack of assurance and trouble to our soul is who? Ourself. Our own fretting, unbelieving heart. Struggling with anxiety and distress, the self-talk that way. The next word is the word, see it in your Bible? Persecution. Persecution. Can persecution separate the believer from God's love? Just ask the persecuted church down the ages. I'll, I'll let you know. Those saints martyred for their faith, who gave up their lives or their livelihood, if you could talk to them right now, you will one day. We'll fellowship together and you will talk with, you know, um, martyrs, reformers, Puritans, the whole gamut. What, what a great conversation. But I'll tell you, right now, they're doing just fine. Just fine. Awaiting consummation, awaiting resurrection glory, yes. Separated from the love of Christ? No. No. What fellowship we'll have but let me tell you this, persecution is not just limited to severe persecution, we could say. In other words, the beheadings and the mutilations and the stonings uh, and the imprisonments that are both regularly carried out around the globe and that we even see recorded in the pages of Scripture and Acts are not the only examples of persecution. In fact, if we just look at the text of Scripture itself, it does not limit persecution to violent persecution. A fairly common explanation of persecution is the word reviling. Reviling. If you just begin to get into the passages and do an exegetical study, we see persecution as reviling. In fact, you can flip there if you want, but let me go backwards to Matthew and read to you words from the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus teaches on this same topic of persecutions. This is in that uh, section of the um, Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. And Jesus himself teaches about persecution. He defines it in terms of these sort of verbal threats. Matthew 5, verse 11. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Friends, whether it's the sting of death or the sting of mockery, Opposition that is provoked by your devotion to Jesus and to his righteousness' sake, that will not separate you from the love of God. And we have a theology of this in the scriptures. We know from 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter chapter 4 says, do not be surprised. Jesus himself taught in the final hours of being alive, John chapter 16, he said that religious 
violence against you, disciples, and religious outcasting against you. That's par for the course. John chapter 16. How about this? What about famine? Back to Romans 8. That's the next word, famine. Can that separate us from Christ's love? Nope. And Paul knew that scarcity, by the way. That's what this word means. It means scarcity or hunger. It's a little bit of a flexible term that way. Paul understood that. He had to learn it. Philippians chapter 4 says, I have learned the secret of contentment. I've learned to be in plenty and in lack, famine. Let's say that toilet paper goes back out of stock. Or let's say that gas prices rise so high that it actually truly affects your, um, your life, your standard of living, all of those things. I don't want that, but that, can't, that's not going, that has no ability to touch our relationship and our security in Christ. There's a sense in which we are absolutely prepared for those things in the Lord. Now, both this word famine and the next word nakedness, you guys see that? Nakedness, they both deal with daily provision. And the Lord taught us to rely on Him. He said to bring our requests for daily bread to Him. So we go to Him in prayer. And the word nakedness, it has the idea of destitution. It's, it's obvious there. Inadequate clothing, right? Destitution. This deals with our daily provision. Again, I ask you, what if in and through persecution and government harassment and COVID-related stuff or whatever else, believers are pushed out of the workplace or good jobs in the workplace, out of stable jobs? Can that separate you from the love of Christ? No, it cannot. Again, we don't want that. We don't pray for that. We pray for what Scripture uh, T tells us in the Thessalonian letters that we would be able to live uh, a quiet life and, and work with our hands and glorify Christ and be a witness to Him in this age. And yet those things cannot even begin to assault the security that we have in the Lord. So I'm not wanting those things. I'm just saying, friend, be encouraged. Be encouraged that the day by faith the Spirit applied the blood of Christ to your account, He fitted you. He prepared you for these things. We don't know what we'll face, but he, there's, a, there's a very real sense in which he has fashioned you. He has prepared you for famine, for nakedness. I don't know if you've read to the end, but we win. Now, the next word is the word peril. Peril. You see that in your Bible? Maybe the word danger. This just means danger. Danger or risk, you might say. I think sometimes we forget just how dangerous the, uh, the ancient world was. On the one hand, yes, it's dangerous for us. We get behind the wheel and it's dangerous on one level each time, some more than others. But um, I would say that danger in the first century is filled with, you know, there's, there was violence. There was, um, there was danger in city life. There was danger in travel. It was so easy for complications related to sickness to go from bad to worse. And the point is, risk and danger, whether it's related to storms or Shipwreck or crime or city violence or wilderness exposure. The word is used all those ways. The point is, danger might scare us. It might get our heart racing. It may even lead to death. But when God allows risk or danger to enter our life, He doesn't turn His back on us. 
His love and grace are lavish even in the face of death. And that's really the last word. It's the word sword. You guys see that? The word sword is a word for death. It's a, it's a symbol for violent death. And you might ask, is Paul just being kind of dramatic here? Kind of a flair for the hyperbolic? And the answer, beloved, is no. In fact, look at this in 2 Corinthians. So keep a finger in Romans 8. Go to 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chronologically before Romans. And really, it's a letter in which, in this latter section, 2 Corinthians 11, um, he, he defends his ministry. Paul doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to defend himself, but he's willing to because similar to the Galatian heresy, as people excuse me, we're attacking the Apostle Paul, it became an inroad to deny the gospel truth. And so he doesn't want to defend himself and his ministry and his authority. He's willing to do it because he loves the truth. And so he does it in a backwards kind of way. He says, I will boast, but not in myself. I'll boast in my sufferings. After all, that's the very thing that these jokers, these false apostles, these false teachers who had entered into Corinth, that's one of the things that they latched onto. They said, Paul can't be legit. Look at his sufferings. Paul comes over and he says, it's my sufferings that make me legit. Because I am dependent on the Lord and I boast in his strength, not my own. So look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? This is the false apostles. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I don't want to make this argument. <laughs> I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Jews 39 lashes. 40 would have been illegal. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. And I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. Apart from such external things, there is also the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Say, so what's the point? Paul had faced the things that he lists in Romans 8. Again, this letter was written before Romans. He was a firsthand witness to these kind of things. And he says they don't have one ability to diminish the love of God in Christ. God's love for us is greater still. Paul understood that these things that he lists in Romans 8, they're part of the all things of Romans 8.28. By a God who works all things together for good. Now go back to Romans 8. As he continues his argument, verse 36, you know, he says that there's these various hardships in life, and he says, verse 36, it's like this just as it's written, just as the psalmist wrote, Psalm 44, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, the verb being put to death is what's called a present verb. So it's a continuous action. In other words, true down the ages. And of course, Paul himself was beheaded. New Testament believers were opposed and persecuted. Early Christians were slaughtered by gladiators. They were fed to lions. The next generation, you know, they, they were able to worship, but they worshiped underground in the catacombs and on and on it goes. He says, this is the pattern, this present tense being put to death. 
And friends, if we take our cues and we craft our convictions from the evangelical culture, we'll find ourselves to be spiritual snowflakes and lacking the testimony of faithfulness and boldness that we could have for the Lord. Because this is our heritage globally and historically, being put to death for His sake. Verse, 44, uh, verse uh, 36 there quotes Psalm 44, and it's to remind us that the people of God in this life face suffering just as our Lord faced suffering. It's part of the plan. It's by design. It's, look, look, look at what verse 36 says. It's for His sake. It's not random. And so you say, the picture here is then uh, like what? It's a picture of a flock of sheep marked out, beloved by the Lord, who are then set apart by the butcher to be slaughtered. You say, ugh. Is that depressing? Not even a little bit. Look at how it goes. Verse 37. But in all these things, <laughs> in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who has loved us. So we saw that there's these hypothetical separators but verse 37 highlights what we might describe as believers being super conquerors in Christ. Believers being super conquerors in Christ. Look at that, verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. So after having listed those hypothetical separators, he mentions this wording, this picture of believers as super conquerors in Christ. Verse 37 starts with the word but by way of strong contrast, and then I love this. You could, you could underline this word. It's in all these things. It's not like, how do we get away from them? Or how do we navigate so that we don't experience them? It's in trial, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in peril, we more than conquer. Wow. Uh, the phrase more than conquerors uh, is, uh, is, is picturesque. Uh, uh, a conqueror is one who defeats an enemy or subdues an enemy. More than conquerors is one who would not only defeat an enemy, but then press that enemy into the service and working of his own benefit. And what I want to tell you on the authority of Scripture this morning, believer, fellow partaker of resurrection hope, you will not only cheat death in the end, but death, the last enemy will be pressed into and worked into your service when you breathe your last. Because when you do, and you're absent from the body, you will be present with the Lord. We need these kind of reminders, don't we? I need this. You look at the grind of life. You look at those societal threats that maybe tend to intimidate us. We look at the things maybe even in this list in Romans 8 or the description of sheep led to the slaughter and it's not like our hearts naturally rise up in courage. And I just want to remind us, trust the Lord. Trust Him. This word, uh, overcome, excuse me, uh, conquer overwhelmingly. Overcomer is actually a, a, another way that this, this verb is, is used. But it's... it's it's only one time in the Greek because the verb conquer is joined to a, to a prefix to kind of heighten it. Super conquerors. That's the idea in Romans 8. Total victory. One commentary, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, we keep on being conquerors to a greater degree. That's the idea here. 
One word smashed together. Uh, we keep on being conquerors to a greater degree. This is not a close win in overtime. Uh, one of the things some of you have, uh, you filled out your, uh, your brackets uh, for March Madness. And, uh, you, you know, maybe your, maybe your bracket has, has, has failed by this point. But uh, one of the things that's such a joy in the, in the great games that we have in March Madness is uh, how so many of them come down to the wire. And whether it's, uh, whether it's in regulation or overtime, but come down to the end game and just such close games. Isn't that a joy? Um, this, ver- this verb, this, this verse, is not talking about a close win. It's talking about a massive blowout. Massive blowout victory. And, and what the Spirit is saying to us here is that the genuine believer's endurance is unstoppable because of the Lord's loyal love to us. We're more than conquerors because we're in Him. In fact, think about it, friends. When you cling to the Lord, when you cling to Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of trouble or heartache or the things listed, famine, difficulty, pressing, and when you turn your eyes away from the false crystal ball of emotions and circumstances and look into the face of your Savior and look into the promises of His Word in Scripture. Those promises, Hebrews 13, He'll never leave or forsake you. Those promises, Romans 8, 17, that the present sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Those promises in His Word, Revelation 21, 4, that a day is coming, it's certain that every tear will be wiped away. When you look away from self and away from feelings and away from circumstances and look to God, look to Christ in His Word, when we believe the truth and we trust Him, that even when He ordains the refining furnace of trouble in our lives, when you look to Him with faith, you preach the gospel with your life. That Christ is sufficient that he's worthy to be followed, to be trusted. Friends, there are some of you in this room who are teenagers. You're in your teens. You're in your 20s. If the Lord is faithful and you live long, you may have 60 to 70 years ahead of you. Let me ask you a question. Do you operate, you young people, do you operate under the assumption that things are going to continually be better for believers in America? Because what I'm going to tell you is that they won't. We know from 2 Timothy that days go from bad to worse. They won't. And here's the important thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because the church keeps being the church. Believers keep doing the same things. We keep gathering. We keep preaching the word. Matthew 16, the Lord says, I will build my church. We keep doing the same thing. We're waiting on the Lord to return. And so, yes, there's difficulty. Yes, the suffering in Romans 8, these challenges, they're they're real. But we serve an unstoppable God whose devotion is expressed in an inseparable love. So we take the long view. Not a year, not a decade, but in eternity there is blowout victory in Christ. Isn't that encouraging? So, we see first that the love of Christ, it's greater than any, uh, uh, than, than, than any of those things that are listed in, in verse uh, 35. But we see secondly, that the love of Christ is stronger 
than every conceivable counterforce. The love of Christ is stronger than every conceivable counterforce. You know, Paul could have just sort of gone on to Romans 9, <laughs> period, and yet he, pick, he ramps up again in verse 38 and, and uh, verse 39. And so, again, friends, we have, as we look at this text, we have these two comparisons uh, that, that showcase inseparable love. First, that love is greater than every earthly trial, and second, that love is stronger than every possible counterforce, every conceivable counterforce. Verse 38 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ten more attributes listed. Several of them in pairs. But look at how the statement begins. Look at verse 38. He says, for, in other words, on the basis of this blowout victory that's sourced in God's goodness and in his love, for I am, I love this, you should underline this word, convinced. I am sure, some translations say, the King James says, I am persuaded. Uh, a couple of closing thoughts related to these last two verses. We can be convinced of God's love. If you're taking notes in your outline, I want to make that point. We can be convinced. That's what he says in that text. I am convinced. I am persuaded. In other words, we can, we can be confident, can't we, in his love. We can know that he loves us even when we feel unloved. We can know that we have not been forgotten even when we feel forgotten, not because we feel it, but because, beloved, he has said it. He said it. Spiritual reality is not a function of what we feel, but what he has said. And this verb, pytho, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, it's a great word. It's a common word, but it has the idea of, uh, of persuasion, of presenting evidence. And the Holy Spirit is saying here, case closed. Right? In fact, this verb is, has the idea of a, uh, of a completed action with ongoing uh, implications, ongoing results. And Paul is saying, when we meditate on and we participate in all the blessings and privileges of knowing God, of knowing Christ, of His faithful love, that begins to ripple out. There's implications. There's a rippling effect in what we face in life. I would ask you, is that true of you this morning? Is that spiritual perspective of persuasion and confidence and conviction, is that true of your faith this morning? Maybe it is. Maybe you say, I'm, I'm, I'm revived as I think about these things, even from God's word in Scripture. But this is a pattern. I'll, I'll just show you one other thing. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to Timothy, and uh, it's, it's, this, uh, it's a similar kind of charge where this, this convincing word group, it produces trust, it produces confidence. Let me just read this to you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, uh, first in verse 11, that he was appointed to his ministry, that he was uh, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And then verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things. So similar to Romans 8. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. So there's knowledge. And then look at this. And I am convinced, same word, pytho. I'm convinced that he is able to guard 
what I've entrusted to him until that day. And what had he entrusted? He entrusted the gospel and he had entrusted his very life and soul. So what do we see there? We see that this, this persuasion, this pytho, it produces confidence. It produces a trust in the Lord. What we know impacts how we walk through trials. James chapter 1 is a familiar text to many of you perhaps. Count it all joy. Not feel it all joy. Count it all joy. If... When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you'll be perfect, lacking in nothing. What you know impacts how you go through trials. Our, our theology, our view of God has everything to do with how we respond. A similar kind of verse, Romans 5.3 says the same thing. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and that perseverance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. I heard a helpful paradigm from um, a brother pastor named Rick Holland uh, who said when we encounter trial and testing, we should self-diagnose with three questions. Three questions. First, what do I feel? We need to be honest about that. What do I feel? Second, what do I, th what do I think? What's going on internally? And third, what do I know? Pytho. What am I convinced of? What am I persuaded of? Because God has said it and I trust it by faith. Revelation. Think about it. We don't worry ourselves into a place of strength, do we? How many times has that worked? You know... What we have in our personal relationship with God and the revelatory promises of his, of his word, that changes everything. It convinces the believer. Now let me flesh out these closing sort of couplets of descriptions that are in pairs. Romans 8 describes that neither death nor life can separate us. That is the comprehensive realm of our, of our, of our existence. Nothing in, nothing in death or life, right? This life or the next. Um, angels or principalities. That describes the spiritual world. I and mean, think about that. That's amazing. E even a believer who's harassed or oppressed or accused by the forces of darkness or by Satan himself, can that separate you from Christ's love? No. No. Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, was called a messenger of Satan, sent to torment him, yet powerless to separate him. The next words are things present and things to come. See that verse 38? That considers the, the temporal dimension. There's nothing in your life right now, believer, and think about this. There's nothing coming if you're genuinely in Christ. There's nothing coming in your future that will cause you to make shipwreck of your faith. Now, don't mishear me. Must you endure? Yes, you must. Will you endure? Yes, you will. You're held in the, in the good shepherd's hand. You must endure. In fact, even the warnings and the threatenings of Scripture become as means of perseverance to the genuine child of God. So they humble themselves under that word. But nothing's coming. No turmoil, no heartache, no persecution, no struggle that's going to outlast his everlasting love. Isn't that amazing? The next phrase, powers. That could be supernatural powers, could be military powers. What if the U.S. becomes uh, a less uh, dominant superpower on the global scene? And what I'm telling you, in your Bible, in Romans 8, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. 
Verse 39, what about height or depth? This considers the spatial realm. It's interesting to note some, call, some scholars detect a, uh, an astronomy reference here with the height and the depths, the height uh, uh, referring to the stars, and that's possible. Um, indeed, in the ancient world, many looked to the stars uh, as those determining the course of life. And if indeed Paul is piggybacking on that argument, the point would be this. The love of Christ is more powerful than destiny, more powerful than fate, more powerful than whatever supposedly organizes this world. That's why he says, verse 39, no created thing. And so, we can be confident, we can be convinced of his love. Last comment I want to make is, is we stand secure in his love. We stand secure in his love. You are, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are more secure than you can comprehend this morning. You are more secure, far more secure than I can preach to you or expound the promises. Uh, but I just want to tell you something. Uh, we don't have time to sort of go backwards to flesh all of this out, but there are in Romans 8.28, a favorite passage of many, there are five facets to that beautiful promise, right? That God was working all things together for good. Uh, it, it's, it's, there's five facets. Let me just list them. You don't need to write these down. God is at work, number one. He's for, it's for the good of his people, number two. He's working all things, number three. It's for believers specifically, number four. And it's for those who are called according to his purpose. That there's a purpose in it. So there's five facets in Romans 8.28, followed by five links in a chain, Romans 8.29 to 30. Believers have been predestined. Before that, they've been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Five links in an unbreakable chain, followed then by five unanswerable questions. It starts in verse 31. We didn't study it this morning, but last time. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. And he gives these questions, and he, he puts a sort of an exclamation point at the last one, which is what we studied this morning. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? So think about that. Five facets of a wonderful promise, five links in an unbreakable chain, five unanswerable questions, 15 arguments, one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another of our security in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And Jesus taught the same thing. John chapter 6. Those who have been given to him by the Father, he loses none. Every single one raised up on the last day. The good shepherd shepherds us unto glory. So no believer cast out. John 6. No believer separated from the love of Christ. Romans 8. I want to show you something in closing. Um, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. This is just a, a sweet promise. Probably familiar words to many of us. But I want to show you something here. Isaiah chapter 55. Verse 8. Maybe you'll recognize these words. Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Perhaps you've meditated on those verses, just the mind-boggling perspective of God. But I want to tell you something this morning. 
Those verses are not merely about God's incomprehensible ways, His greatness, His glory. It's not, that just, it's not just that God's ways are beyond us. They are. <laughs> no question. That's a good application. Secondarily. Because this text is saying specifically that God's love and His compassion is infinitely higher than ours. Go backwards. Look at verse 6. Look at this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Then he says, my, you wouldn't do this. My ways, my forgiveness, my compassion, my love is not like what you would have planned. It's not like what you would have extended, O oh man. This is what the Lord is saying in this wonderful text. It's the greatness of His pardoning love. The longness of His patience for us. And no wonder, friends, God, 1 John 4, 8, is love. He is love. That's our hope in the Gospel. Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us at the right time while we were what? While we were enemies, he jumps on the grenade, not of his comrade, but of his enemy. What wonderful, wonderful love we have in the gospel. So deep and rich and selfless. What does Paul want us to do in light of this text? He wants, he wants you to pytho, okay? He wants us to be convinced, to be persuaded, to be encouraged. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to rejoice in Christ. And I would say this, he wants us to thank him. And we have an opportunity to respond that way this morning, to say thank you to the Lord Jesus Christ in praise, in response. And um, what, a, what a privilege to be loved with love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. He sent his son for us to pay the penalty for our sin. He says in that Isaiah text, he says, let the wicked forsake his way. Come. And the only thing that I would add in closing is if there is anyone among us in this room who has not given their life, their heart, surrendered themselves to the authority, the lordship of Christ, I would invite you, come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Forsake the wicked way. If there's someone among us, and you think about your own life, your own heart before Christ, your own confidence, you say, I don't know if I have confidence of where I stand for eternity. We can have confidence not because of ourselves, but if we would forsake our wickedness, turn from self, turn from religion, turn from... Uh, works righteousness, turn from those things and trust only in Christ. Trust in the love that's offered freely to us because I want to tell you, friend, if you do not know Jesus personally, these sweet promises that we've spent time in together, they are not for you. They're not yours to claim. In fact, the scripture would even say that the wrath of God abides over those who resist him, who reject him. And so come, turn from your sin. What holds you back? Come to Christ. Trust in Christ alone. He is the one who forgives. He's the one who's able to cleanse. He's the one who offers life to, de to dead sinners, dead in our sins and trespasses. He is the one who offers pardon. Seek him while he may be found.
pray.